I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, with um, Jason Werbelov. And today we're delighted to have a guest all the way from uh, the US of A uh, in Michigan. So we have Liz Jackson, who is um, simultaneously employed by a university in Australia. So we're spanning multiple continents at the moment. Um, Liz is a world-renowned epistemologist and will be talking to us today um, about some interesting things around belief and faith and hope and uh, what is rational to do. Um, Liz, as is customary, would you like to start us off with a thought experiment? Yes, definitely. So first, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on uh, Brain in a Bat is what it's called, right? So i uh, really honored to be here and to talk with you all more about, yeah, belief, faith, and hope. So the thought experiment that I wanted to start off with is this. And um, so suppose that your brother goes missing. He's been missing for a while and you get more and more evidence that he's dead. Because of this evidence, you believe and you think it's pretty likely that he's dead. But you think, look, there's some chance that he might be alive. And it would be really, really good if he were alive and I found him. And because there's that chance that he's alive and it would be really good if he was alive, you continue to act as if he's alive. You put up missing posters, you spend time searching for him, etc. And the goodness of sort of being able to find him, this possibility, motivates you to do this, even though you think it's pretty unlikely that he's alive. So what I think is interesting about this thought experiment is that it shows that, at least in certain cases, what you should believe and how you should act can come apart. So in this case, uh, you should believe that your brother is dead, or at least think it's very likely that he's dead, but it's still rational for you to act as if he's alive because how, of how high the stakes are, because there's a potentially really good outcome you could get if he is alive. And I think this is really interesting because part of what it shows is that having a lot of evidence for something isn't the only thing that justifies us in acting as if that thing's true, but also sort of what we desire or what's at stake that also plays a big part in justifying um, how we should act. So yeah, that's the thought experiment. <laughs> yeah, so, so just for listeners, this is an area of philosophy we call epistemology. So it, it concerns the basis of what is rational and concerns knowledge and when that knowledge is justified and when our actions are justified and when our actions are rational. And uh, what's so interesting about Liz's claim, if I understand correctly, is that in, on the traditional view, um, in order to act rationally, you need to act in accordance with your beliefs. And what's so interesting about this view is it paints a picture of how it's possible to act rationally, even though you're acting against your belief. Because instead of your belief, what you're basing your action on is hope. And what's so interesting about Liz's account is that it goes against the grain in saying that hope could be a rational justification for action. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I think, yeah, part of what it's pointing out is evidence and belief, that's not the whole story. You also need something about desire and hope. And that also motivates us. And I mean, a really basic case that I like to give is, let's say you're, um, you're hungry, so you want food and you believe there's food in the fridge, then you'll go to the fridge and get food. But you kind of need both of those elements, right? If you just believe that there's food in the fridge, but you don't want food, you won't go to the fridge. And if you just want food, but don't believe there's food in the fridge, then you won't go to the fridge. So this kind of, another thought experiment just sort of illustrates that you sort of need both some kind of belief-like thing and some kind of desire or hope-like thing um, to, to get the action off the ground, so. I think the other thing that you raise is this notion of stakes and how that would probably be a strong motivating factor. So if we think about your case where it's the brother um, you have this very close relationship with, you might very well continue to search for years, even as the evidence mounts up that they're in all likelihood dead. But for example, if it was your uh, pet rock that you lost, um, you might first of all put up a couple of posters and say, my pet rock's got these sort of googly eyes and I'd really like it to be found. And you sort of accept that it's probably gone, um, but you hope that you get it back. But if you persisted in that, given how low the stakes are, we might start to think that what you're doing is irrational. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think what I like about your model is that you, you've kind of got a number of different factors playing a role. So I suppose the amount of evidence that's available to you and what, um, how much you believe it. And 
I suppose you could believe that on a scale between naught and one, one being absolutely true belief and one being, I mean, zero being the sort of, I absolutely believe it not to be true. And that a lot of our beliefs are going to be somewhere in the middle. And I assume you could kind of pull up a bit of a, a calculation for rationality, which is to take into account, you know, what is the likelihood that this is true? How much do I want it to be true? And how good would it actually be? In other words, what are the genuine stakes? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, actually, that's kind of what decision theory does. I don't know uh, if your listeners are familiar, but basically decision theory is just a model of how we should make decisions. And it's actually exactly, basically what you're describing is you sort of put in a probability where zero is like, it's impossible. There's no chance it's true. One is it's definitely true. And, you know, in most cases, it's somewhere kind of in between zero and one. And then you put in this thing that's represents utility, which would be how good it is if it's true or how much you want it to be true. And basically with those two inputs, uh, it kind of tells you how you should act. So a lot of the examples in the paper, you can actually model using decision theory, which is basically exactly, exactly what you're describing. But it's interesting because yeah, decision theory actually does have kind of the result that I'm talking about, which is at least in some cases, even if something has a low probability, it could still be rational to act as if it's true because as you say, uh, if, of how high the stakes are. Um, and then maybe as the stakes get higher, maybe that action is rational for longer or it's rational even though the pro relevant probability is lower. Um, but I like the pet rock, <laughs> the pet rock versus you know, your actual brother going missing because I think that illustrates it really well. If it was your beloved pet rock, you know, it might not be totally, you might, we might not say it's totally irrational to look for it for a, a few days or something. Um, but if you if you did it for years, would be like, oh, okay. <laughs> but in the brother case, it actually seems like, yeah, you could look for your brother for years, even in the face of evidence that kind of mounts against, uh, against you know, him being alive. So. I mean, this is assuming your brother's very important to you and the Petrock isn't. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a good clarification. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I mean, it, what, you, what you're making is a very technical point, uh, at least mm. to non-philosophers, it might sound like a very technical point, but it has some very interesting real world implications. Um, and, and one of them is our situation around COVID. Um, mm -hmm. So COVID-19 um, evidence is quite muddy at times. You know, we, we don't have a one or a minus one or a one or a zero about this. You know, we, we, we kind of like, we, our evidence points somewhat towards some conclusions and somewhat towards others. Um, but people need to make a decision about what they're going to do. And governments need to make decisions about whether to lift lockdowns or impose lockdowns. Um, in South Africa, we've got quite a draconian lockdown. A lot of people are very upset. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, should you act as if the virus isn't bad or should you lock down as if the virus is bad? Yeah. COVID is a tricky situation because actually the stakes are kind of high on both sides. And I think that's why this is actually such a, a controversial and highly debated topic with, you know, I have people that are out with the protesters and then I have people saying we all need to stay inside until there's a vaccine and, and, and all the opinions in between. But the reason I think it's so controversial is because, you know, if we're, we're not locking down and we're letting people roam freely and go to their jobs and all that, um, there's a real, very real chance that a lot of lives could be lost, which is very high stakes, right? Um, but on the other hand, um, there's very serious costs to being locked down as well. I mean, economic costs are one, but also, um, yeah, it's just, it's, there's been um, a rise in, I think, uh, abuse and domestic violence and drug use. And like, so economic costs, but all these other costs as well, and, and people being unemployed. So, I mean, one, one thing that I think is part of what people are debating is how do we weigh these against each other? And is, are the stakes higher in one versus the other, but because clearly they're both high stakes things, I think that's what makes it such a tricky issue. And it's not really obvious, uh, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's not really obvious what we should do potentially. Um, I mean, I think I think a lot of us should probably lock down, but I, but I guess I can acknowledge like this is a live debate to be had and there's, uh, there's arguments to be made on both sides. So I think that's where the stakes here, the stakes aren't, don't give us a clear answer in this case because they're high, they're high for both camps. So here's mm -hmm. a difficult question. Um, mm -hmm. So some people will say that faith shouldn't enter into the equation, faith or hope shouldn't enter mm -hmm. into the equation. We should be purely rational calculators here. 
Um, and I'm not saying this is the correct position, but this is mm -hmm. one, one position. Um, you know, we should be purely rational calculators, put hope and faith aside and just, mm -hmm. and just look at our beliefs, which have a very um, high epistemic requirements. In other words, they require a lot of evidence for us to form those beliefs. A higher, it's a higher threshold than in the case of hope or faith. So some people might say we should put hope and faith aside and in a situation like this where there's so much at stake, only act on beliefs because beliefs have that higher epistemic requirement. How, do you, what, how would you respond to that? Do you think that's correct or incorrect? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, maybe I'll respond to it in general and then we can kind of think more about how it might apply to COVID specifically. But I think, one thing that sort of at least in in the paper that I wrote, which we can, you know, maybe link to or whatever, uh, faith and hope are just kind of representing what's important to us or what's valuable to us. And so I think it's wrong to think about faith and hope as kind of this uh, slightly irrational thing or thing that doesn't thing that kind of ignores evidence. That's not really how I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking them about them more like something that represents what we want or what we're going for or our desires or something. And so when you think about it that way, I think it's actually not at all clear that beliefs are sort of rational in a way that faith and hope aren't. And maybe I can give a quick example of that. And then maybe we can talk more. I haven't really thought about how this in particular might apply to COVID, but we can talk more about that. But um, another example that I have in the paper is, so let's suppose you live like in Northern Minnesota or somewhere where it's really, really cold and it's the middle of winter and you um, live next to a lake. And because it's so cold, it's been below freezing, let's say for months, you believe that the ice is solid. You, we could even say that that belief is rational. You have tons of evidence for it, right? Um, and you have a bunch of little kids and they're all out playing in the snow and they ask you, can, can we go play on the lake? Can we, go, can we go play on the lake? And you believe the ice is solid and you have good evidence for it. But nonetheless, you acknowledge there's some chance that the, that the ice could, could crack. If your kids play on it, you're not 100% sure, you know, it's not like you believe it the same way you believe one plus one equals two or something. So because of that, you actually, um, that's where sort of your desires come in and you say, look, it would be really, really bad if my kids fell in and I really don't want them to fall in. And so in this case, I'm not going to rely on my belief. Um, and in this case, sort of the desire is playing a bigger role in uh, what you end up deciding to do. And because of the risk involved, you don't let them play on the lake. And so that's kind of how I think about belief versus faith and hope more. Um, I, I think belief is important and it plays a big role in our decision making. But sometimes, um, sometimes desires have to play a really big role too. And when the stakes are really high, we shouldn't always act on something just because we believe it. And that is actually controversial. A lot of people deny that. But I just think, look, the stakes are so high, you don't have to give up your belief, but you shouldn't act on that belief. Um, how it's does that interact answer. with how does that interact yeah. with COVID though? That's interesting. I haven't I haven't thought about that enough. Um, I don't know if you guys have a thought. bit of a, a way of thinking about it. So it seems like the first case we talk about is is hope, right? So we you hope mm -hmm. that you find your long lost brother. And then your your case with the frozen lake is fear. So you say, mm. you know, I'm pretty damn sure that the lake's not going to crack, but I have a fear that it might um, because I don't know for certain. And the magnitude of um, the fear being correct is gigantic. My kids die. So what's interesting in the COVID case, let's, let's put it down to one variable. Let's say it's um, mortality rates in COVID. So there's different views as to what your chances of dying are, uh, let's say on a population level. And there's quite big ranges. So the one range is it's going to be at the end of the day, just like uh, the flu and we'll have a 0.1 mm. kill rate. And other people say, I mean, the World Health Organization started with a 3.4% mortality rate. So, you know, um, 34 times as high. So on the one hand, you've, let's say, got the, the hopeful way of behaving, which say, I hope that it's got a low mortality rate. And therefore your guidance for action would be to act as if it has that mortality rate which would be, let's say, don't impose lockdowns, have a normal society, mm -hmm. freely trade, and um, you then hope that you know, the cost of that um, is very minor. And then there's the fear reaction, which is to say, well, it's equally possible, given the information that we have, that it'll be 34 times as bad, and if we open up our society, we're gonna have huge amounts of deaths, which will have all these other economic consequences. And what's hard to work out, given the paucity of information, is what are we guided by rationally? you know, is it hope or is it fear? And let's assume that the level of desire is the same. I have the same level of hope or the same level of fear between people. We've got similar levels of evidence. 
the stakes are equally as high, you know, um, economic costs or, or health costs. Um, what do we do? We're pushing yeah. you for an answer, Liz. No, that's 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 solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think one thing that I should point out too, and I say this in the paper, is I don't think that every case of hope rationalizes action, right? I just think there's an interesting uh, connection between a lot of cases of hope and action. But I could say, like, I hope we get a vaccine tomorrow. But that doesn't mean I should act like we're going to get a vaccine tomorrow. Um, I think that would probably license some, some pretty inappropriate behavior. So the, the thought is that when we're trying to decide, if I hope that, that P, like I hope something's true, where P just represents some truth, um, I hope something's true, when should I act as if it's true? Well, part of what I have to think about is what would happen if I were wrong about that, right? Um, what would happen if, if, if the thing I hoped for didn't, didn't come about? And so in your example, um, what was it? I, I hope, I forgot. What, oh, I hope that the mortality rate is, much, is, is on the low end rather than on the higher end. So one thing I talk about in the paper is, well, we have to think about what if I'm wrong about the mortality rate? And what if it's a lot higher than, than I initially thought? And in this case, you know, a lot more people would die, right? So because things would be really bad, because the stakes are really high, uh, if I'm wrong about this, then that's going to be one of the cases where hope might, might not allow us to act as if that thing's true. And I think that's okay with me because I don't want hope to just have this trumping power no matter what. If you hope for it, you should act as if it's true. I just, I think that's going to be way too strong. But I still think it's interesting because it, 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 it at the same time means that beliefs don't, don't do all the work either. There's some cases where hope does a lot of work some cases where belief does a lot of work, and in some cases where we just really need to think about the possibility that we're wrong and, and we shouldn't act on, on hope. So, yeah. So, so here's, here's an interesting possibility. Okay, so this mm -hmm. could still happen, and there's some possible world in which this is the case. Um, so suppose, at the, you know, at the moment, the evidence uh, fits both a 3% mortality rate model and a 0.1% mortality rate model, depending on how you interpret the evidence in mm -hmm. our world right now. But suppose in another possible world, the evidence stacks up in one direction. So suppose the evidence stacks up in the flu direction, the 0.1%, the better case scenario, right? Um, so, 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 you know, in your, in your case with the, with the children going to play on the frozen lake, um, you've got um, a lot of evidence that the lake is okay, right? That the lake is stable and that they're not going to fall through the ice. Um, but you still are worried that it could happen, right? And and so because of, and because of that, uh, you tell them you can't go play on the ice. Okay. So in this other possible world where it's not indeterminate which way the data is going to go, um, but let's say there really is very strong evidence, but not complete evidence that you're at zero point one percent. Do we still then lock down on on the small possibility that it could be much higher? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think, uh, I mean, one thing that's going to depend on is how good the evidence is, right? But if we say it's pretty dang good, I think we're going to need to realize there's actually an important disanalogy between the COVID case and the ice case. And that's, um, if your kids can't play on the ice, you're not really losing much. Like maybe they're not quite having quite as much fun, but they're fine. You know, they can make snow angels and snowmen and, you know, it's not a big deal. Um, but in the COVID case, that's, again, that's, that's not exactly the same because the stakes are so high on both cases. So I think we either need to get like really, really, really good evidence or we need to be, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it because, um, because of how bad it would be if we were wrong, you know. So I think the stakes are slightly different in the ICE case than in the COVID case because in the ICE case, the stakes are really only high on, on one side of things. And then in the COVID case, they're sort of high on both sides. I think there's, a, there's another way in which we can cash it out, which is we might think, for example, the person who says, look, I'm not going to go and walk on the ice because as much as I would like it, I don't want that personal risk versus, mm -hmm. let's say, the state of Minnesota saying don't walk on the ice um, with equal levels of probability of it being a 0.1% chance that you'll fall through. Um, and so you might have a situation where, in other words, it might be rational for someone who's very risk averse to say, look, I don't think the state should be telling anyone whether they can you know, leave their house or go to work under conditions where it's a 0.1 chance of death. But I'm certainly not doing that. I'm not going to take mm -hmm. that personal risk for myself. 
And I think what's interesting is it's not clear to me that, you know, you can have a, an, an, you know, our individual decisions are partly motivated by what we value. So as you point out, where there are different stakes. So for example, you know, in, in, the, in the ice case, um, the stakes are low for the, the pleasure you get from walking on, on the lake. Um, in the COVID case, the stakes are very high of, you know, being able to lead a normal life, see your friends and family, you know, go to work, things like that. But they might be different for particular individuals, um, you know, and, and probably based on their own risk profiles, like what their chances are of dying or what they, what they value. Yeah, good. And so it, it could also be that the evidential threshold for, you know, when the government can force us to be locked down, maybe that's different than the evidential threshold for when it's rational for us to stay locked down, whether they tell us to or not. And so maybe there's a certain threshold where, you know, we should loosen the laws up, but nonetheless, it's still rational for most of us to continue to choose to, do, to engage in social distancing. Um, so it might be that, I mean, again, like I don't work in political philosophy, but there's something coercive about the government and that coercion is only justified when the evidence, uh, you know, isn't like if, if we were talking about the evidence pointing towards the really low uh, death rates of COVID, you, once the evidence got to a certain point, that coercion would no longer be justified. So that that's a potential, that's a potential view you could have. And I, yeah, I hadn't thought about applying this to pol political philosophy at all, but that's, that's really interesting actually, um, potentially plausible. Yeah, so there's this very interesting distinction between the um, requirements for actions to have certain properties for individuals and for those mm -hmm. actions to have the same properties for groups. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, the requirements for a group to act morally might be quite different for the, from the requirements for an individual to act morally or for a group to act rationally might be quite different from an individual to act rationally or government or a policymaker. So, so you might have you might have a different calculus uh, to the individual mm -hmm. calculus. And this leads me to a, an interesting question. Well, for me, it's interesting. It is, <laughs> what, what, is there a calculus? So you, you said there's these different factors, right? So there's belief um, and there's desire. Um, so there's this conative factor and this ep epistemic factor. Um, and and they're, they're playing different roles depending on the stakes. So there's this third element, which is the stakes. Um, and there's stakes on both sides. So there's actually four kind of four variables now. Um, I, I, do you have like a, like a, is there like a quantitative way of, of like, like working out? Like, do you, do you put a, do you put a number to each of these and then kind of come out with a solution or is it kind of more feely than that, you know, rather qualitative, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm actually open to the idea that pretty much everything I at least say in this paper about belief and faith and hope, you can model kind of using decision theory. And so again, decision theory is, it, it takes uh, this thing that's called credences, which is basically the zero to one thing we were talking about. And that's basically how likely are certain ways the world might be. It takes credences and then it takes your desires, they call it utilities. It takes those as inputs and then kind of spits out what you should do. And so I think one thing that is, I'm kind of pointing on this paper is it, it could all be, have it have decision theory kind of underlying it. But that doesn't mean that faith and hope are meaningless or can't play an important role. We can actually model what faith and hope are doing sort of using decision theory. Um, but I, I mean, the other thing about decision theory is you're right. I mean, it is, uh, it, it requires like a, a big numerical calculation and you put a lot of numbers in and it's pretty technical, or at least it can be, it doesn't have to be, but um, a lot of versions are. And so I think it's also nice to sort of have general heuristics that don't necessarily require putting numbers in. Um, but I think if we truly wanted to test like the rationality of something, I would kind of want to use decision theory to verify that. Um, but yeah, so I do think we can kind of do it all really technically using numbers, but uh, we can also kind of think about different cases and, and how we could spell it out without putting the exact numbers on it. Um, but then I also think too, how does that apply to groups and governments? Um, and, and, and I, you know, maybe it's, it's different. Maybe the, the stakes are different because there's more calculations there, whether that's because um, coercion, like the coercive element of governments, or whether that's because like people in the group have different beliefs. And so the group beliefs are different than the individual beliefs. And so the way we assign the credence, the number from zero to one is different. So there might be some interesting modifications that we have to make in the group case versus the individual case. Um, but yeah, I would want to sort of say decision theory kind of underlies a lot of it. 
So I'd like to kind of move on from the, the controversial topic of COVID and move on to something like just very light and airy, which is um, faith in God. <laughs> you know, something non-controversial. So, uh, you know, the classic sort of way of thinking about this problem um, is uh, Pascal's wager, right? So Pascal says, well, let's say we don't have one evidence one way or the other to whether God exists. But let's assume that if you believe in God, um, you get to go to heaven if he exists. And if you don't believe in God and he exists, you go to hell. Versus God doesn't exist, in which case, you know, you die, you cease to exist. So he says, well, given how good heaven is and how bad hell is, surely it's rational to believe in God. Um, and so you might say, you know, um, given the stakes, um, which, which have a very high magnitude, um, and when I put it through Jason's proposed algebraic equation, you know, even if I've got a very low credence level, let's say not zero, if I put in a zero, the whole thing fails. So let's say I put it at a point mm -hmm. one, um, I output it out and I go, well, therefore it is rational to have, let's say point one equals not belief in God, but faith in God. Um, therefore one ought to have faith in God. What's your, what's your take yeah. on that? Yeah. So I know this argument is really controversial, but I actually think, um, it can show that like people that either, you know, have faith or have hope and they think the probability that God exists is really low. So you, you don't believe it. You maybe have faith or even if you don't have faith, you have, you just have hope. You just hope God exists and that's it. I do think that an argument like this can actually sort of show that it could still be rational to act as if God exists or to commit to God um, because of, like you said, the stakes uh, associated with, uh, you know, believing in God versus not believing in God, or I, I would put it maybe committing to God versus not committing to God. So one thing that's interesting is I don't think you have to make Pascal's wager about belief. There's a lot of objections that come up when you say you should just believe in God because like you can gain all this stuff and, you know, you could lose all this stuff. So believe it, you know, um, there's a lot of problems that come up with that. One, can't control our beliefs. It doesn't seem like, but two, even if we could, that doesn't really, that seems kind of irrational to believe it just because it would be, you know, practically good or whatever. So, so one thing that I think this paper actually really nicely would connect to Pascal's wager is that if we make it about some kind of commitment in this paper I talk a lot about this thing called acceptance which is acting as if something's true um, then I think we can kind of get around some of those objections but also show that at least in some cases people with really low credences in God could still be rational in um, acting as if or kind of continuing in an action-oriented commitment to God. So I've got a... Sorry go ahead Mark. I've got this concern, which is if we, if we thought about the positive and negative stakes, you know, so let's assume that the particular religion that you're a part of um, requires very onerous things of you. So let's say mm. you come from a very orthodox community um, and the, the way to commit to God means lots of dietary restrictions, lots of sexual restrictions, aesthetic restrictions. Um, now, and let's yeah. assume that you then have to dedicate your life to this way of being. Um, and it turns out that there is no God. So when you die, you only got one life and you wasted it. Um, let's assume that mm -hmm. the activities that you're doing were not externally valuable in and of themselves. So it's not that you got this, you know, oh, well, it wasn't all a waste. You did the moral thing. You did the community-based thing. Let's assume the kinds of things you're doing were just pretty damn awful. And the only reason you're doing them was, well, there's this wonderful afterlife. And you were wrong. Um, it's not clear that it's, that it's rational to operate given how big the stakes are and given that you only had the one life. The, the other problem, of course, is, um, well, which, which God is the one that exists? Mm. So, you know, our, our bet is not a one-to-one. -one. You know, if there's a plethora of possible gods, you know, is it Joseph Smith's God? You know, is it Jesus? Is it Yahweh? Is it Vishnu? You know, so when you roll that dice and make this huge decision about how you calibrate your life, it might be that you know, that God says, well, I'm sorry, but you worship the wrong version of me. So off mm. to hell it is anyway. Um, yeah. So you've got this difficulty. No, those are both great, great objections. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll do, I'll do the, them in reverse order. So the first one was, well, you know, maybe you've given me some reason to think you should commit or believe in God, but which God, like, how do we pick between religions? And so the, the way I kind of suggest that we go about this is we actually incorporate um, 
all the different religions into the decision table. So we don't just say God exists, God doesn't exist. It's it's a lot more complex than that. And we put in, you know, all the religions that you at least take to be sort of live options or live possibilities. And then, I mean, it's going to be a little bit complex, but what ends up happening is that you should commit to the religion you think is most likely to be true, sort of barring some other more complex considerations. And so the idea is that um, decision theory, and this actually is part of the answer to your first one too, it's kind of this interesting theory because it's a very sort of subjective kind of rationality. So it's sort of rationality kind of given your current perspective, given your current beliefs, given your current desires. And so inevitably it's gonna end up it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be cases where you do what's decision theoretically rational, but actually in reality, if you had known the truth, um, that, that isn't the best thing to do, but it's sort of all you have to work with in that moment, right? And so the, because of this subjective nature of decision theory, what it's going to tell you about the many gods worry is to kind of go for the religion that you personally take to be most likely to be true. So you could have a version of Pascal's wager that says, um, oh, like, here's Pascal's wager, and then here's a bunch of arguments that this religion is the most likely religion, and then those two together could kind of give you a specific version of the wager that tells you to wager on a certain religion, but, um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not here to give arguments for a certain religion or anything like that. So if you can incorporate all the different religions into the decision matrix, then you're just going to want to go for the most probable one. Again, it's a little more complex than that, but that's sort of I think the best way to kind of explain it simply. Um, the first question, or should I keep going? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the me, first question I'll, was, oh, yeah. I'll butt in a little bit so then we can get back to the first okay. one, which is, I think yeah. you're right that if we're following the model that you've got to plug all the religions in, it's not clear to me that there would be any more or less rational way to decide between supernatural faiths. So, you know, when people describe Scientology, you know, they say, well, Obviously, the idea of, you know, alien Lord Xenu dumping a bunch of bodies off a spaceship into volcanoes 70 million years ago is completely nuts, <laughs> you, know? Um, and, you know, people who are, who are not Scientologists will already agree. Um, but, you know, people who aren't uh, Christians might say, well, hold on, there's this being who is his own dad and who came back from the dead and who can walk on water um, and wants his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood, you know. How do we decide the veracity of these things? So I think you, that would be quite a hard exercise, but let's assume you could do that. But the other bit that seems like we'd be doing more work on your table is the stakes. So the very angry God who says, well, let me tell you how many pitchforks I'm going to put in your backside if you don't believe in me. You have much more reason to sign up to that faith because of the stakes. Or the very bountiful God who says, well, let me tell you how majestic, you know, how 72 virgins, well, have I got something to offer you that's going to beat the hell out of that, you know, and you just up the stakes there. So the more fantastical it gets, the more it seems like you have reason to buy into that faith. Um, uh, and that, that seems like a problem for the account, uh, because I can just yeah. generate a religion um, that beats all the other odds, you know, and just sort of says, well, it's the worst imaginable hell and the best possible heaven. And then it becomes rational to sign up to my faith because the stakes are so high. And I just have to make my underlying credence levels similar to all the other established faiths. Mm. Yeah, good. So this is why I said uh, you should wager on the religion you think is most likely, but it's a little more complicated than that. And that's because, yeah, you can put stakes into the equation and things get more complicated. So I think um, sort of what I, the, the reason I, I want to go back to that probability thing though, and I keep saying wager on the religion you think to be most likely, is because I do think that a lot of major religions will i mean i don't want to speak for all of them and 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 another thing to note here is there's just a lot of complicated theological issues here that have to do with studying afterlives and studying religions that i'm not an expert in but um i think a lot of major religions would want to say that their afterlife isn't just great but it's it's perfect it's it's the best it's it's you can't improve on it you know and and maybe hell is the worst i i, I don't know i mean but, but if you think that there's kind of a maximum for how good heaven can be and how bad hell could be, then that will actually not able you to kind of, uh, they call them super religions, uh, at least sometimes in the literature, where it's this religion that's either way better or hell is way worse than whatever religion you, know, you think is likely. So, but if you say, no, heaven is perfect, it's, it's the best it can be and it can't be any better, then that actually can kind of block that objection 
And then if, if we sort of, I think, charitably assume that most of the major religions would want to say that, then um, probability is actually going to be doing most of the work rather than um, the mistakes. So that's that's why I keep kind of going back to the wager on the wager on the religion that you think is most likely, because I think most religions are going to want to say theirs is kind of at the maximum. But this isn't, I mean, look, you could challenge that there is a maximum. You could, I mean, there's really interesting debates about like, yeah, the being, heaven being the best of all possible worlds. And there's, there's a lot here that, you know, I haven't fully answered, but at least I think that would be kind of the beginnings of a, of a potential answer. But um, did we want to come back to your yeah, yeah, other do. your other objection? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting objection. And, and part of me is going to say, I don't fully know what to say about this. But I think whether you should commit to a religion and um, what religion you should commit to, that's going to depend on kind of, well, okay, so there's two versions of Pascal's wager. There's a version that appeals to infinities. So heaven is infinitely good, hell is infinitely bad. And then there's versions that are just finite versions. So if you have an infinite version, I think you can get a lot of the problems that you're talking about off the ground pretty easily because you're going to have this view on which sort of infinite, I mean, at least intuitively, infinities are always going to trump finites. And so you're going to have to make kind of any finite sacrifice for uh, this infinite good. And that's actually one of, in my opinion, a potentially unsolved problem with Pascal's wager. Because if you rely on this idea that infinities always trump finites, then you can get even crazier cases going. So consider this case. Um, you're offered a 0.01% chance in 0.01 increase in infinite utility. So this tiny, tiny, you're offered a tiny chance at an increase in infinite utility, which once you do decision theory, that is going to have infinite expected value. Um, in exchange for 100,000 years of the worst torture ever. So that's a finite amount of badness, right? So decision theory, if, at least if you do the traditional infinites trump finites thing, it's going to say you should take that. that that's a good trade. Um, and I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's tough. So, so I think you can even take your objection and, and kind of ramp it up to maybe a more unrealistic thought experiment but still one that shows like, is, do infinities really trump finites? And I think the best response is just gonna have to be like, look, humans are really bad about reasoning about infinities. There's, there's all this psychological evidence that even really large numbers are really bad at reasoning about. And so we just like these judgments that you shouldn't take this bet, we're just, we're just too bad at reasoning about infinities uh, to really be able to see that the infinite should trump the finite. I mean, that's the best I can do, but, I'm worried about that for sure. So I think that's potentially one of the problems. And there's ways you could modify the wager to maybe not rely on infinite utilities or say, you know, you should take some risks and not other risks um, to, to potentially get around this. So maybe it's not a problem for every version, but I do, I do worry about that, so. So I've got one more objection to throw at you, Liz. I hope you don't mind yeah. me throwing objections. Absolutely not. I love it. Because <laughs> usually like it. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the problem I have with hope and faith on a personal, you know, on a personal note, which I think translates into a well-known problem for Pascal's wager, is that um, they can be self-defeating. So mm -hmm. um, you, you sit with someone and you say to them, not you should believe in God because it's practical to do so, but you should have faith in God or hope that God exists because it's practical to do so. Because when you die, there's this infinite or very high level of utility, right? If you do. Um, but God might turn around and say, well, hold on, you're believing or hoping or having mm -hmm. faith in me for the wrong reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're not going to heaven because you're doing it for selfish reasons. Mm. Um, and, and I think this reflects a, a, a general view that I have about hope or faith, which is that it might be self-defeating. When you hope for something or you have faith in something, built into its very essence is this kernel that can, can negate the very thing that you want. Mm. And that yeah, that's a, okay. rationality. Mm. Yeah, I think... Um, I do think it's important. So, so one thing to say is there's different versions of Pascal's wager, right? And there's different reasons one might be motivated to do something like Pascal's wager. And we can also debate about how broad do we want to, you know, do we want to include these other things that maybe end up looking very different than what Pascal himself was talking about. But I'm kind of thinking about Pascal's wager pretty broadly. 
So even a, a case that says, here's how faith or hope could make a commitment rational, even if you don't have a lot of evidence, that's maybe pr pretty different than a traditional Pascalian thing, but let's just take it pretty broadly. So I agree that there are versions of Pascal's wager that look pretty bad. They look pretty selfish. You're just kind of focusing on, um, you know, the pleasure of heaven or whatever, and it doesn't look great. But I also think to say that um, pursuing anything that you want or pursuing anything uh, that's your goal or that would be good for you or that would contribute to your flourishing, that that's selfish and that's bad. I think that that just can't be true because like almost everything we do every day is based on some kind of goal we have or some kind of end that we have. Uh, eating food and working out and doing our job and even, you know, hanging out with friends and family, that's often something that we want, even if it's also good for our friends and family. So I think sometimes philosophers distinguish between selfish and self-interested, where selfish is sort of pursuing your own good, uh, but ignoring other people's good. So I care so much more about myself than other people that I'm going to do something that's good for me, even if it's really bad for you. And then self-interested, which is just uh, doing something that you want. That's a thing we do almost, you know, all the time, every day. <laughs> so, um, so I do think that doing something just because it's aligned with one of your goals, uh, that doesn't automatically make it morally suspect. Um, so that's one thing to say. I mean, I think another thing to say, and that's related, is that there's different motives, uh, different ways you could cash out the wager. And the way that I like to think about the wager is just how good it would be um, to have a relationship with God if God did exist. And you're not, it's not just about like your pleasure, but it's about like, if there really is this all powerful creator that wants a relationship with me, um, that would be a pretty good thing to pursue that if God did exist. And um, so it's, it's, it's more about the potential goodness of, of a relationship with an all good God, rather than kind of just about something that's totally selfish and ignoring other people. And it's interesting, um, Mike Rhoda has a book that's called Taking Pascal's Wager. And he also talks about potential versions of the wager where you do it for someone else, or you do it for God. So it's actually not selfish or self-interested, but you do it because, yeah, it could benefit another person or it could even, you know, bring God pleasure or something. So, uh, so I guess the, the broad answer is, I think you're right about some versions of the wager, but I think there are other versions of the wager that kind of aren't inher inherently selfish. Well, it sounds like what you have to plug in is hope about the nature of the God you're dealing with. So mm. in other words, let's say I say, I, I hope that uh, God is very loving and understanding. And so if I pick the wrong faith, he says, well, you know, you worship Vishnu, but that's close enough. I'm actually Shiva. And ah, you know what? Welcome aboard, right? <laughs> but I hope that I'm dealing with a God like that, as opposed to the very persnickety God who says, mm, I don't think you really obeyed the letter of the law quite as I expected. So off to damnation for you. Um, and so that sort of seems like it's going to cloud your rational judgments. So you hope that God has a very particular account of motivation. I mean, you could have a God who says, sorry, gamblers go to hell. You know, the fact that you sat down and did some sort of rationality help, it's a real turnoff for me. Um, that's not the kind of God I want to be. Yeah, so, sorry, you picked right. You believe in the right guy, you know, but oh, I don't like your motivations. Turn off, Jed. You know, and, and the problem, of course, we have is the sort of the lack of, the lack of knowledge about the existence, existence of God and the nature of God, you know, um, to work out what that would be. I sort of wonder about this. So yeah. if I think about, you've cast it out as a commitment and a relationship. So imagine you say, I believe that my soulmate is out there. I believe that there is the perfect man in my life. And if I met him, I would have the best of all possible relationships. And so I, you know, I don't know it. I have some level of, of credence in this account. And I'm going to act as if that person is there. And when you meet someone that is clearly not perfect, you end the relationship. And so you keep saying no to all these sort of sub-perfect relationships and then you die a spinster, you know, <laughs> um, you could say you had the wrong attitude towards romantic love. You know, you could have picked, you know, a, a life that was suboptimal where you were with a few Mr. Mr. Rights or right issues. Um, you never found your soulmate, but that was better than dying alone. And that might be the sort of parallel with the God case, which is you mm -hmm. had all your hopes pinned on the sort of perfect eternal being, Turns out there is no Mr. Right, there is no Mr. Eternal Being, and you missed out on your life, and that was the only chance you had. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one thing that's also relevant here, too, is 
um, well, I think it, it depends on sort of the religion in question, but how good or bad would it be during this life to kind of have this commitment to God? And there's interesting psychological evidence, I think, on both sides, because some of it does tend to show that religious people, at least uh, some of them, are, are happy and healthy and unlikely to get divorced and all this stuff. But um, I also think for some people, it might just be really miserable. And you might think, especially if you don't go in for the finite, uh, the infinite version of the wager that I was talking about, um, but if you either go in for a finite version or you use a different decision rule. So there's decision rules that are like dominance, which means it's better. So taking some action is better no matter what. So it's better both in this life and in the afterlife. So if you're looking at that kind of thing, um, if that's your sort of decision rule, then you would you would only take the wager if uh, the the commitment was better in this life and in the afterlife, right? So because so if you're using that rule, then then you know how the commitment would compare versus not making the commitment in this in this life uh, would would make a big difference, right? And so you could argue that if the commitment would be really, really bad for you, then uh, you shouldn't make it. But again, I think that's going to depend on sort of the religion and what it re requires of you. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, th I, I do think that the, the analogy with, the, um, you know, going to find your soulmate is kind of interesting. Um, because I guess in that case, what I would want to say is, well, in that case, your, your credence that you have this soulmate out there might just be a little bit too high. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know where that quite came from, but I guess you're right that if like the goodness of that soulmate uh, is good enough, you could sort of get the numbers to work out where you should like continue to to search for that soulmate. But then I think I would just say like you should probably lower your credence then. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to to think about like how would this case uh, in what in what cases would be analogous or disanalogous with Pascal's wager. And for, for fear of uh, talking too long, it actually reminds me of this other objection to Pascal's wager that's called Pascal's mugging. Have you guys heard of this? No, okay, so it's, it's similar to your case actually. But so Pascal is you know in a dark alley late at night and this guy comes up to Pascal and he's like, hey Pascal, give me all your money. <laughs> and um, Pascal is like, turns around and he's like, you don't even have a weapon. Like, why should I give you my money? And then the guy's like, hmm, and he thinks for a second. And he's like, well, if you give me all the money in your wallet now, I'll deposit a trillion dollars into your bank account tomorrow. <laughs> and so, you know, Pascal is like, well, I mean, the, the probability he's lying is really high. Like, I, you know, there's like a 0.0001% chance that he's telling the truth. But a trillion dollars, like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and so then, like, Pascal gets mugged and gives him his wallet. Uh, so it's, 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 in some ways, it actually reminds me of the case that you were talking about. Because I think what it shows is that there's at least some cases where if there's a low probability of getting some really good thing, um, it's irrational to pay some cost. To kind of get that because the probability is so low um, and I guess I think the best response to this on behalf of the wager is just to say there's got to be a way to distinguish some of these cases from other cases right because like if you're really sick and there's you know some chance that this medicine will make you better but it's really expensive or something there could be even if it's a really low chance the medicine will, make, will get you uh, make you better it seems like there's cases where it's rational to pay money to get even a lot of money to get that medicine because of how good it would be if you got better. So that's in some ways it's like a similarly structured case, but it's not clearly it's not clear that it's irrational, whereas Pascal's mugging seems clearly irrational. So I don't know the best way to do it, but we need a way to kind of distinguish between these these cases. Cause yeah, sometimes we should take that risk and other times we clearly shouldn't. Um, maybe if your credence is just way too low, maybe that would be part of it. So if you think it's just super, super, super unlikely, then maybe at a certain point you should just kind of, uh, there's like some threshold where you shouldn't think about, uh, you should just kind of uh, rule it out or something. Um, and so then that would be interesting because what it would mean would be that in order for you to have to wager for God in Pascal's case, your credence would have to meet at least some, some threshold. And then we can like debate about what that threshold would be. So that's one way of going. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a full answer to that, but I do think the Pascal's mugging case is kind of fun. <laughs> so I want to present uh, an alternative position um, mm -hmm. to yours. Or, uh, well, before I do that, I, I want to find out if I understand your position correctly in one respect. So 
is your claim that whether an action is rational or not is a one or zero? In other words, it either is or it isn't. Or is your claim that there's degrees of rationality? And this leads into my, mm. my alternative position. Because if you think that there, there are not degrees, let's say you think that it's a one or zero, then that's why all these cases are coming up. And that's why these are difficult cases for you to face. Mm. Because you're having to balance all of these different criteria, these different variables, and, and get out a one or a zero. But if you think that, that there's degrees, well, then it opens you up to an alternative position, which I think you won't like, which is that um, any action that's justified on the basis of um, hope or, 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 or hope or faith might still have some degree of rationality, but it might be a lower degree of rationality mm. than, one, than an action that's based on beliefs. Yeah, it's interesting. So if you just use decision theory to sort of, if, that, if that's your theory of rational action, um, I talked about, you know, dominance and similar things, but the traditional way you do it is you say what maximizes expected value. And so what you're going to do is you're going to plug in um, the probabilities, your credences, the numbers from zero to one, you're going to plug in the utilities, your desires, and then you're actually going to be able to just kind of rank the actions numerically. Um, and so then what you're supposed to do is you, you do the action that has, it's what's called the highest expected value. And it's basically from your perspective, it's most likely to lead to the good outcome. But you could say, so let's say you do this and the actions are like eight, four, three, two, seven, five. You know, you could think about that as kind of like a degree of rationality. You should go for the, I think it was the eight. Now I don't even remember what the highest number was. But, but if you went for the seven instead, you wouldn't be as irrational as if you went for the one. You know what I mean? Um, so, so there's a way of using decision theory, at least certain versions of it, to think about rationality as coming in degrees. Um, I don't know if you, do you want to say more about the faith and hope thing or do you? Yeah, I was just thinking if you do permit degrees of rationality, then, then you might be opening yourself up to the, the, the claim that, all right, I'll admit, um, as the skeptic or as your objector, I'll admit that, um, hope and faith have some degree of rationality, but maybe in most cases it's going to be very low compared with a belief-formed um, action or mm. an action based on a belief, which will have a much higher degree of rationality. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think one thing you can say is if you're going to act as if P on the basis of hope, that P, versus um, uh, you, let's say you have the hope, but you also have really good evidence for it too. Um, in that case, it's almost going to be like overdetermined that you should act that way. Like you're going to have multiple reasons to act that way. Whereas the hope case, it's just going to be a case where um, it might just be like, that's your best option. Like I, some of the cases I talk about in the paper are like um, persevering uh, in a concentration camp or persevering through a very serious illness. And in those cases, you really don't have other options available to you. And, it, you know, your evidence maybe isn't very good that you're going to survive uh, the surgery, maybe that you have to survive to get over your illness or, or survive the concentration camp, right? Um, but if you had enough evidence to believe that you would survive the concentration camp, like you heard like the war is about to end and we're all going to get out of here next week, then it's even more and in some sense more rational to act um, as if you're going to survive. But I think in certain cases, life's just not ideal. Like we just don't have that kind of evidence, you know. Um, and so even if, you know, things are pretty desperate and, and you really don't have a ton of evidence you're going to survive, I still think even in those desperate times when your evidence is really inconclusive, I think you still can act as if it's true. Um, so, so I guess part of what I, I'm partially agreeing with you in that like, it's better if we have the evidence, like that's, that's an even better case. But I think what I'm saying is just like, sometimes we just don't, and then we still have to decide how to act anyway. Um, so it's kind of like a feature of the non-ideal, the fact that we aren't, we're non-ideal epistemically or something. So you bring up, um, I think the concentration camp case brings up something interesting. So uh, Viktor Frankl talked about that sort of terrible optimism. So mm. some people who hoped that uh, the camps would be liberated by Christmas and Christmas would come and go. And uh, you found that the death rate soared during this time because their hopes were defeated. And so the hope acted in a sort of negative manner. And then you have um, 
James Stockdale and the Stockdale Paradox. So Stockdale um, was a Vietnam soldier and he was captured and he was tortured for seven years. And he said you kind of had to operate with two modes. So the one was to confront the brutal reality of your situation and accept that there was a very high likelihood that you were going to be tortured to death and that you would never make it back home. But at the same time, to get through the situation, you needed to hope that they would get better. But the hope was sort of, let's say, a bit more generalized. It wasn't, I hope I get home by Christmas. It was, I, I hope I get out of this alive. Um, and that that hope buoyed you through the difficult situation, um, but it wasn't the terrible sort of optimism that clouded out the brutal reality. Yeah, that's a nice point. Um, I think that's really good. It actually reminds me of um, certain religious groups that say like, God's going to come and take all his followers on this date. You know what I mean? And when you put a time on it, um, I think, yeah, you're kind of asking for, uh, it, you know, that day comes and goes, like people are going to be discouraged. Uh, so that's kind of a religious analog maybe to, to sort of the concentration camp cases. I mean, it's hard because like in the concentration camp, for example, maybe just having the general hope, that's just really hard to keep going. Like if you have like a clear... Actually, this reminds me of like when I work out and I'm like, I'm going to only run for like 10 more minutes and then be done. It's a lot easier to do that than if you're like, I'm just going to run indefinitely. You know what I mean? So, so I, I see the tension there because I could see how psychologically it would be easier if they had a deadline in mind. But at the same time, um, you're kind of asking for a lot of discouragement if that, if, that, uh, if, that, if that time passes. So I think you're right that probably if you can psychologically do it, the best thing to, to have would be some more general hope that doesn't kind of put a time frame on it. But I do think it's really tricky, um, like psychological issues about how you continue through hard times, even in the face of discouragement. And I think hope can play some role, but one question is, is it always enough? And maybe it's not, you know, maybe, maybe you need something else as well. But yeah, the other lesson I think is that what you're hoping in, the object of the hope is really important too. And if you're hoping that this will happen by this time, that's very different than if you're sort of having some kind of more general hope. I thought Mark's uh, case really illustrates what I was saying earlier about within hope or faith is the kernel of its failure. Um, you know, the hope that we will be out of here by Christmas, out of the concentration camp by Christmas, has within it the kernel I mean, it helps you, right? It, 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 it goaded them to, to continue to survive. Um, but at the same time, there's this, there's this paradox because at the same time, mm. even though it's so, it's so helpful, it's equally detrimental when it doesn't materialize. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think one thing that could help with that is by shifting the object of your, of your hope. But then I think the trade-off would be, like I said, it could be psychologically more difficult to have the hope. So, so yeah, I think, I think there's really interesting questions here and probably a lot more uh, that, you know, I could probably write a couple more papers just about, about all these things we've been talking about because I don't necessarily get into all of them in the paper, whether it's, you know, degrees of rationality or how this applies to Pascal's wager. But, but yeah, this is, this is great. <laughs> Liz, I wanted to say thank you so much for an absolutely riveting conversation. Uh, I think part of what you've done so well is give us all these different tools to approach the world. So if we think about the role that hope, faith, belief, rationality can play and how they can play a role in looking at each other, that there might be rational hopes to have, you know, and how we can not just talk about it in an abstract way, but very much given the world that we live in right now, which is one of hope and fear, I think this conversation has been enormously valuable for helping us uh, navigate through that. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I think philosophy, it's easy to see it as this really abstract thing that academics are doing in their ivory towers, but I actually think a lot of it has a lot of really important real life applications. And yeah, like today we talked about applications to COVID or applications to when you're just going through a really hard time and don't have good options available. So, so yeah, I want to, I guess, give a shout out to philosophy because I really do think it actually uh, can really help us navigate through, through real life issues. So, but also thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's been lovely and you guys have given me some really good objections. Some of them, some of them I probably didn't fully answer because, because they're great. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Oh no, well, we really appreciate you humoring our objections, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're wonderful. So <laughs> I had a lot of fun. This was a great conversation. By the way, so this is something that I think people find odd about philosophers, which is that we love it when people disagree with us. We say, yeah. oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's devastating for my, my position. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, 
Uh, it's one of one of our funny. great oddities. <laughs> it's funny. I yeah, I've been doing um, some more stuff like kind of on the internet and on YouTube lately, and it is I've been really noticing how philosophers react really differently than uh, non philosophers when it comes to things like this. Non philosophers are like, I can't believe you disagree with me, and sometimes it can like hurt the relationship. And philosophers are like, Oh man, you're my best friend now. This is great, you know. Um, so it's 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 funny how how different things are. I mean, I actually think both camps could learn from each other in a lot of ways. And it's it's been cool to be able to, uh, you know, interact with people outside of just philosophers to kind of see the, the way that they hear these arguments. But it is, it's also hilarious to compare, <laughs> compare the way that philosophers react to non-philosophers. So maybe philosophers, the rationality in philosophers is the hope that their beliefs will turn out false. <laughs> 